Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. This week's episode of Mission Log was recorded prior to the SAG-AFTRA strike guidelines relating to rewatch and companion podcasts. Roddenberry Entertainment stands in solidarity with creative professionals. You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join us today for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord at patreon.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 505, Nemesis. Fathom this, brave defenders. You're glimpsing an episode of Mission Log, an audio telling about the trek to the stars. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Every seven new lights, we glimpse a chapter of the treks and then share our tellings with you about the conduct, substance, and exchanges in those tellings. Fathom? On this new light, we meet the nemesis, the motherless beasts that are on one side of the clash, but we fathom one could say the same on the other side of the clash. John, that's about the fullness of it. Defender John will return with the details behind this clash as soon as I tell you how to use your dispatching to give us your tellings. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, here's John Champion with this week's tellings. All right, the trivial tellings for this week's episode, Nemesis. It was written by Kenneth Biller, and Ken gets around to doing exactly what he set out to do. It is a story about the psychology of hate through propaganda with a twist ending. And Jerry Taylor was very pleased with the outcome, and she particularly wanted to see an episode early in the season that highlighted Chakotay, who she felt as a character had not gotten enough screen time in the previous season. This was directed by Alexander Singer, and we most recently covered his Voyager episode, Worst Case Scenario. We are approaching the end of his contributions to this series, but remember that Alexander has been around since TNG when he directed Relics, and he was a fan of the franchise from way back in the TOS days when he was also directing for another Desilu production, Mission Impossible. Now, the production had the challenge of a lot of heavily wooded slash jungle scenes in the script, but they managed to trim that down to the location shooting of just two days and then matched that with a lot of clever work in studio. The location, incidentally, was not our old favorite Griffith Park, although you could certainly be forgiven if you thought that it was. They actually moved the company over to Warner Brothers in Burbank, where there was and still is a pretty sizable backlot, including a jungle setting. 
Now let's meet our guest stars, a lot of them here making up for the relative lack in the previous few episodes. On the motherless Creighton Beast side, we meet a commandant played by Peter Voigt, who we previously saw as a Bajoran in the DS9 episode A Man Alone, and as a Romulan in the TNG episode Tin Man. There's also Ambassador Treen, played by Terrence Evans, and he is also a returning guest star. He appeared as two different and very memorable Bajoran characters in the DS9 episodes Progress and Cardassians. In the Larhana settlement, we get to know Penno, played by Booth Coleman, and Karia, played by Megan Murphy. And fighting for the Vori fourth contingent, we spend the most time with three soldiers. Naaman is played by Nathan Anderson, and he kickstarted his acting career in the mid-90s with this episode being pretty early on his resume. He did other guest star gigs on shows like Babylon 5, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and shows up more recently in roles on Mad Men, Castle, and CSI, to name a few. He is also an accomplished editor. Matt E. Levin played Rafen, and you may not know the face right away, but no question you have seen him before. He appeared in the movie Starship Troopers. He has provided his voice for a lot of projects, including Star Wars video games, and it might surprise you to see that he has some comedy chops to show off in a number of Ben Stiller films, Zoolander, Tropic of Thunder, Dodgeball, just to name a very few. He's also a producer in both fiction and nonfiction projects, and thus far, this is his only Trek appearance. Brone is played by Michael Mahonan. He has an extensive background in live theater and then spent a good portion of the 90s and 2000s in guest star roles on TV. He then turned his attention to writing and producing, and he wrote and appeared in the 2023 short sci-fi film, Broken Order. To date, this is his only Trek appearance. For anyone experiencing any confusion, that other nemesis we covered had shins on. This nemesis is strictly shins off. Prologue. A deep wooded area at nighttime. A young soldier holding a weapon quietly stalks his prey, and when he aims his weapon, he points it at Commander Chakotay and orders him not to move. Act 1. Chakotay is escorted back to a camp of some sort to face the rest of the soldiers, members of the 4th Contingent. The one in charge, Brone, sizes him up. He doesn't look like the enemy, so maybe they can all relax a bit and figure out who he is. Chakotay says who he is and explains that his shuttle was fired upon, which is why he crashed on this planet. Brone says that his people, the Vori, are in a long conflict with their enemy, the Kraden, who likely shot him down. With his communicator not working, Chakotay has no way to contact Voyager, but he'll need to wait until sunlight to set out to find what's left of his shuttle, hopefully some communications equipment. In the meantime, he's going to have a meal, and he talks with a young soldier, Rafen, who is new to fighting the Kraden. He's inexperienced, anxious, and eager to prove his worth, promising to Brone that he'll fight and nullify as many of the Kraden beasts as he can. Beasts? asked Chakotay. That's because the Vori see the Kraden as heartless killers, totally lacking in understanding or reason. They've been at this fight for a long time. Many of the Vori have their towns burned and relatives killed. Chakotay tries to stay out of it. Maybe the Kraden are just as afraid of the Vori, but that doesn't get him far. 
With Rafen too scared to take Chakotay on its mission, Naaman volunteers. During the day, as the two walk, they discuss the Creighton threat, and again, Chakotay tries to make an appeal for peace. But Naaman says he just doesn't get it, how awful the Creighton are. The farther they walk and as the sun sets, Naaman says they should turn back and wait to meet up with the seventh contingent. Just then, Chakotay finds a tiny burned piece of his shuttle, not much left at all. But out of nowhere, two Creighton soldiers attack, and Naaman kills one but is shot in the melee. Chakotay pulls Naaman's weapon and threatens the other, but Vori gunfire from the bushes take out the other Creighton. The attackers are dead, but so is Naaman. Act Two. The other Vori ritualistically honor their fallen comrade with their customary face-down burial. Brone then offers Chakotay Naaman's clothes in order to better blend in with the surroundings. Along with the camo comes a gun. Chakotay is hesitant at first, but Brone warns him that the journey ahead is going to be dangerous, and when the shooting starts, he had better join them if he wants to live. So that means Chakotay needs a little training, and Rafin is just the one to help. But Rafin is still nervous, and Chakotay tries in the moment to help humanize the enemy by drawing a parallel to his experience with the Cardassians. It doesn't quite stick. Rafin is still full of fear and anger, which he takes out on the clay targets. As their mission carries on in the dark, Brone and his fourth contingent make their way to rendezvous with the seventh, but they discover a gruesome marker— the body of one of the soldiers from the seventh strapped to the ground, face up, as if to mock their belief in a proper burial. It outrages the other soldiers, and more so when they realize that the camp of the seventh has been destroyed with all the men killed and displayed like this one. Chakotay begins to understand the deep hatred the Vori have for the Creighton, and those in the fourth contingent use this moment as a motivation for their goals to eradicate the Creighton. Brone leads him in a rallying speech, but soon bullets are flying from the cover of the woods, another Creighton attack. Rafin is hit, and Chakotay goes to his side, only to hear the young man's last request to be turned facing downward to the way after. He complies, but Chakotay is hit too, and he finds himself separated from the others. After daybreak, Chakotay finds his way to a small camp, Civilians of all ages graciously welcoming this brave defender to their settlement. As he is presented with a flower lay, Chakotay falls to the ground, unconscious. Act 3. Hey, you all remember a starship called Voyager, right? Well, they remember Chakotay, and they've been looking for him. But all they've found is some shuttle debris that went down in the middle of a war zone. They've been in touch with an ambassador who assures Janeway that if Chakotay is found, he will get medical attention and be returned. But as for now, conditions are too dangerous for the crew to do much more than wait. Back on the surface, Chakotay is getting to know the kind people in the settlement. Even though he isn't one of them, they deeply respect his bravery in fighting with the fourth contingent, and they want to make sure that he has everything he needs, including rest, before he gets back into the fight. But Chakotay explains that he's actually looking for a way to contact his ship. All of their tech was destroyed by the Creighton, but an old man, Penno, says there is a communications array at a resupply depot some distance away. Chakotay will set out for there in the morning. Before he can, though, Chakotay is visited by Penno's young granddaughter, Korea, who asks if he knows her brother, Dario, who is with the seventh contingent. 
Chakotay doesn't have the heart to tell her about the fate of the seventh, and believing he's still alive, Korea runs off to draft a letter for Chakotay to take to Dario when he can rendezvous with them. As Chakotay sets out the next day, he's surrounded by the people of this settlement, all wishing him well and giving him the provisions he needs. It's a happy scene, with Karia giving him the letter for her brother. When he's a short distance away, Chakotay looks up and sees a couple of Creighton aircraft whizzing overhead, and then he hears the sounds of their attack. He runs back to the settlement to find the Creighton soldiers brutalizing the Vori inhabitants, destroying their possessions, and before he can fire his weapon, Chakotay himself is taken into captivity by the Creighton. Act 4 there's a little bit of good news on Voyager. No remains have been found, which means Chakotay may still be alive, and the ambassador, Treen, has agreed to help by allowing Tuvok to infiltrate the war zone with a small commando unit. It will help him keep a lower profile and better hope to extract Chakotay from the enemy who, as Voyager has learned from the ambassador himself, are vicious, unconscionable killers. Meanwhile, Chakotay and a few of the survivors of the attack are being held under Creighton guard. Caria is worried about her grandfather, and when Chakotay inquires to see a superior, he's pushed to the ground. He says he'll protect Caria, but the two need to sleep to see if they can find him the next day. In the morning, the Creighton are separating the settlers into groups, those who can work and those who can't. The ones who can't will be taken to an extermination camp, and that's where Caria spots her grandfather, Penno. She cries out to him, but her calls are mocked by the Creighton guard, prompting him to take them both away to the extermination camp. As Caria cries out, Chakotay leaps into action, punching a Creighton guard and then rushing the commandant. He's outnumbered, though, and one of the others knocks Chakotay out with the butt of his gun. Back on Voyager, Janeway is finally ready to welcome Ambassador Treen on board. He arrives, and he's a magnanimous professional diplomat who happens to be Creighton. And he assures Janeway that anyone who falls victim to the vicious Vori will surely find friends among the Creighton. Act 5. Chakotay is discovered by Brone, strapped to the ground, face up, just as the Creighton have left other Vori soldiers. But he's alive and Brone shares the bad news that the people from the Larhana settlement have been marched through the woods toward, likely, the extermination camp. Just as bad, the whole fourth contingent has been wiped out except for Brone, but he's grateful for all the help Chakotay has given, and now his only option is to try to join the fifth contingent on his own. And Chakotay, in the wake of his experience seeing what the Creighton have done, now fully understands why the Vori see them as beasts. Brown offers to take him to a command base where he can call Voyager, but Chakotay says he wants to stay and finish the fight, get to the fifth, and save the people from the Larana camp. That night, they are caught in the thick of another battle with Creighton, when a large munition explodes and badly injures Brown. The Creighton call for surrender, but an infuriated Chakotay picks up his weapon and fires into the dark woods. Then a voice from the Creighton calls him by name specifically asking Commander Chakotay of the USS Voyager to cease fire. The Creighton identifies himself as Tuvok, and the image of the Creighton begins to morph in and out of a familiar face to Chakotay. Still, Chakotay doesn't believe it and keeps his weapon trained on him. Tuvok further explains, Chakotay has been brainwashed. The Vori shot him down and placed him in a training camp for the purpose of turning him into a soldier for their cause and he can prove it. 
the two quietly approach a small settlement. It's the same settlement Chicote saw before. There's Penno and Caria and all the others welcoming the brave defender, the exact same experience he had before, all a holographic simulation, just as every experience he had up until the battle that Tuvok had erupted was a simulation too. Back on Voyager, Chicote is recovering in sickbay and learns more of the truth. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. The Vori capture and recruit any number of people who happen to be passing through and conscript them into the war. As for the Craden, maybe they do the things that the Vori accuse them of. Maybe they don't. But they accuse the Vori of the same thing. To wish Chicote well, Ambassador Treen himself enters sickbay. The sight of a Craden is more than the commander can take, though, and he excuses himself out into the corridor. Treen is surprised maybe a little embarrassed. Janeway follows Chakotay, and it's there that he tells her that he wishes it were as easy to stop hating as it was to start. The end. All right, Norman, normally we get right into the comments, but I got to mm. tell you something. Mm. I, I thought long and hard about writing my recap in the language of the Vori. <laughs> Wow. Okay. I, I could, uh, I absolutely could not bring myself to do it. It would have taken three times as long to do it. So, did, dear listeners, you get an intro and that, that that's what you get. <laughs> did you find it difficult to, to try and get into the mentality of, of the syntax? Uh, yes. And yeah. my hat is off to Ken Biller because he said in an interview, he was like, well, it's not really that hard. You're just replacing common words with a lesser known version of that word but honestly like that takes a lot of thought to do it and, and to get it right and you I, I guess for the episode you could bang out a glossary and you could say okay you're doing this word for that word and you just stick right. with that but even then the cadence is just different it just feels different um and i think to great effect which we'll get into later but i <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I couldn't do it. When I realized that the recap was going to take longer than I thought, I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Just yeah. do it in straight up English. <laughs> yeah. Well, I applaud so, you for trying. I, I thought about it. Like I said, intro, that's all you get. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but let's get into the episode. The teaser segment, I, very short and to the point, I have no notes. I mean, the only note that I wanted to bring up I thought the music was incredible. I mean, it oh, really so just good. drove and ramped up the tension. Uh, rarely mm -hmm. do we talk about music, uh, you yeah. know, uh, just in terms of our observational points. And and I, I hope to talk about it more because I very I thought it was very effective. Yeah, yeah. And here I will get right back to the language, speaking about things that are effective. Really cool way to use words that we all know as an English-speaking audience, but turn it on its head a little bit. I love the commitment of the script to that, and I think it's very effective to make a setting feel alien while not relying on technical jargon or a bunch of sci-fi makeup or hardware. Like You don't need any of that because you sell it with the dialogue, and that's a cool thing to be able to do. Man, I, I think that uh, the conviction of the actors and and the way that they embrace the dialogue as being something that was natural to them also yeah. helped sell that. So 
I have a timestamp at three minutes, 43 seconds. Mm-hmm. The episode title drops into the dialogue. He's no nemesis, is he? So there we like, go. There it is. And golf it's not clap. the first time. It, there are many times. Nor shall uh, it be the last. But yeah, it. they yeah. definitely get a golf clap anytime you drop the title in the actual production, for mm-hmm. sure. Look, I hope the leader of the fourth contingent, I hope that he gets to go hang out at Club Brone Med sometime. Oh, Yes. Oh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Golf club, everyone a, out yes, there. Yes. There you go. <laughs> For uh, kind of like this ragtag rebel faction, they have mm-hmm. some pretty modern looking weapons. And it, it is a little bit of a pet peeve of mine when I see essentially modern firearms in a science fiction setting. Now, they did yeah. some really interesting things, like with Starship Troopers, with like the Makita, like, you know, automatic rifles. But here, they're very close to modern-looking rifles, so yeah. uh, it just kind of collapses the the reality, you know, yeah. from the fantasy, well, or the science did, fiction fantasy. I did wonder about that because it, it's cool to me when you can drop little hints about how far advanced an alien species is. And sometimes mixing things up is not bad. Like, you know, you and I are fans of the Tim Burton Batman, and he made mm-hmm. a very conscious choice to mix in, like... Here are places where the technology is advanced. Here are places where, okay, there's a 1970s car on the road, you know, um, to, to make it a little uh, alternate timeline, a little otherworldly for you without having to sit there and explain all of it. Mm-hmm. This was an interesting episode because certain aspects had very modern or or advanced futuristic sci-fi technology the little tracker device that they were using to find the uh the fifth contingent or sorry the seventh but then the weapons were very contemporary to you know 20th century america Mm -hmm. so i i was asking myself where and why they were making those decisions but yeah it's okay you know it's yeah, I mean, strange. It, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't sidetrack me from my enjoyment of the episode. It's just kind of yeah. You ask these questions like, why did they make that choice to basically create you know like gunpowder based weapons, you know, yeah. in, in this? So you know, of right. course. But I, I can hear everyone saying like, well, why couldn't they? I'm like, I get it. Sure, I just sure. You know, yeah. it's the why, yeah. why not? Sure, right. But at the same time, it's like, okay, this is not a. It is a first contact situation, but this is not a prime directive situation where they have to stay away from that planet. Because look, Ambassador Treen, he beams up. They have flying craft, which we assume are spacecraft as well. So there are advancements on this planet that make it okay to visit. Mm-hmm. But some of the technology is backward. So, yeah, it's a little hard to figure out. Now, look, we say all that, and I bring this up, and I don't want to make your eye twitch, but Chakotay's <laughs> communicator isn't working, but the universal translator must be working? Maybe, well, maybe maybe that's an offline function. It's like on your phone, you know, some functions are offline, and the translator part of it is? What do you think? Yeah, see, this is an interesting kind of... Um almost like a Venn diagram of alien language on one sphere, human language in another sphere, Mm -hmm. and this language used specifically to train Chakotay within the Venn diagram overlap. Mm. Because essentially that's what this language is. It's it's a cadence of programming, you know, that we eventually learn that that indoctrinates Chakotay. But... Are they speaking a language that he understands as human common or, because that's impossible, yeah. or is 
he is the, the communicator that's been nullified <laughs> translating the language. But how can it? Because they specifically say it's not working because it's dampened. I'm like, oh god, yeah. Well, no, but I, I, I like I like your explanation though. I like that idea that. Okay, they have advanced enough tech to do this simulation, so maybe that level of translator is baked into the tech of the simulation. I think that's might, the only way you can justify it. It, yeah. it might be. It might mm-hmm. be. In it, and uh, maybe it's inside the hollow matrix of the program mm-hmm. so that it can communicate to any uh, yeah. anyone that they can script from anywhere. Yeah. Uh, so that's definitely a possibility. But it's when they said your communicator isn't working because there's a dampening field preventing you to be able to call out. I'm like, then how is he translating it? Right. So, right. right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I like the Creighton, the Creighton that ambushed Chakotay and Naaman. They, so I'm feeling a lot of Nausicaan type prosthetics yeah. going on here yeah. because Nausicaans are like equal bad guy villain, like in yeah. the worst way. Right, and, and and I think that it, it's definitely a choice that they made to help telegraph to the audience. Oh no, no, these are definitely the bad guys. These are bad you guys. Know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I feel like that was a choice on their part to do that. I I love the cultural choices that we have for the Vori as well. Like we talked about the language being a choice, but like something simple and meaningful, like the downward facing burial. To make that a specific point, I think there's a really good way to get across a lot of information about what's important without having to explain it. Um, right. I thought that was a cool choice. Yeah, and I liked that's a small detail, but I, I mm-hmm. like that they told Chakotay, take off that bright uniform, you're going to get us killed. Put yes. this on because yes. this is how you're going to camouflage yourself. It's just, it's a small thing, but it's also symbolic of Chakotay kind of shedding his identity yeah turning into uh well for for all intents and purposes turning into a drone yeah yeah here don't wear your clothes wear the the clothes of our cult (laughs) wear the clothes of our group exactly by the way here's a little tip to the vori why not just make the sight on the gun more accurate instead of always a little low good question yeah, it's, it's a good it's question. Like, you, you remember Bond uh, visiting the arms maker in The Man with the Golden Gun, and he mm-hmm. had made that weapon specifically for somebody who was missing a finger, so it always aimed a little too low. Okay, well, that's a one-off. That, that, all of these people, all these Vori, they all have their, their fingers intact, as far as I could tell. So just make the sights accurate much better. Yeah, no one in the Vori named Scaramanga, for sure. No, definitely not. Yeah. I, I did like how Chakotay used the Cardassian story as a shorthand, or the writers did this, the sh- as a shorthand for we, the audience, to understand, okay, this is that kind of fight. This is that kind of, yeah. uh, you know, hatred, you know, that Chakotay is, like, starting to embrace yeah. about the situation. So, it, again, it's an, a, it's very economical. You know, there, there have been points, you know, in the last couple episodes where the writing has been very on point, very economical, yeah. like very streamlined. And this is one of those. And I like how it, it, it informs something about Chakotay, that even though he was dedicated to the cause of the Maquis, it wasn't about hate of the enemy. It, it was about we're in this impossible situation. I have to do this thing. But there's still that piece in his mind that says, no, no, but I also need to understand that those are people. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was an important element for him to hold on to, at least for these first few acts, <laughs> you know, until yeah. he goes completely off the rails. Uh, man, and I love th- that we don't see Voyager until the third act. 
I yeah. love that. And I like that we've done this now uh, once before in Distant Origin, where you just mm-hmm. don't get on Voyager until well into the story. Very cool choice. By the way, how does Neelix know anything about the Kraden or the Vore? Or, look, maybe maybe he talked to somebody there when they arrived. Maybe the ambassador was talking to Janeway and they were like, here, here's our cultural emissary to talk to Neelix, your goodwill ambassador. You know, maybe something like that, because other than that, let me just remind you, we are well past the Neckard Expanse, and Mm -hmm. Voyager got flung 9,500 light years away when Kess became an energy being. So Neelix should have no knowledge of this place whatsoever. I mean, that's a great... That I mean, it's it's a great uh, idea, John. Uh, you know that uh, he's kind of being put in that ambassadorial role that he was, you know, once floated as having. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe there's an unseen, you know, uh, a scene or a deleted scene or something that was written saying like, okay, Neelix talked to this ambassador because mm-hmm. there is something that something that's starting to kind of trend in this episode that's not really kind of sitting well with me, and yeah. it starts with with Neelix. Neelix says about the war, it's vicious. Ambassador Treen's people have been defending themselves against a particularly savage aggressor for more than a decade. And as yep. soon as that line landed, I'm like, why do I feel like there's something coming? Yeah. I, you know? I, okay, I'm glad that you said that because I felt like there was a twist and mm-hmm. I didn't know exactly what it would be. But yes, yeah, you know, that, that was the tip off. <laughs> it's like, pay attention to this now. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll, right. I'll pay attention right. to it. There's, there's the shiny. Speaking of shiny, I really liked the, uh, the lighting in the cave sequence. I, I don't know like uh, mm. how mm. it was shot in studio, but I felt that using the flickering flame and then seeing yeah. the shadows flicker, you know, along with the flame, I thought the scene was very organic, very believable. Uh, and it, 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 you know, it, it created that kind of warmth that you needed from that scene to create this bond between the grandfather and the you know the daughter and just to make them more human because i think that that was the point right just to sympathize with their plight so i thought that was really well done and i also thought the uh the jets that we saw fly over um when chakotay was trying to find the fifth i think it was Uh uh they looked and sounded like carriers but futuristic carriers let let me blow your mind a little bit they were (laughs) <laughs> yeah, they, they, they seem like it. And they got touched up with a little CG. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Harriers are great. I mean, they, they look They're fantastic. Awesome. I mean, they look I futuristic. Love, but yeah, yeah, I love those things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the competitiveness between Tom Paris and Tuvok, was that just a little weird? <laughs> like, like, have we had a lot of this before? Because it feels odd, especially here, given the seriousness of the situation. I mean, Tom's reaction, like, oh, I don't get to go be the hero. Like, yeah. I, that... That was a strange bit of conflict to play. It was a little chest thumpy for Tom, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But but at the same time, though, I thought it was kind of neat that... I, and maybe they're trying to turn a corner with him with, uh, say, the previous episode was Day of Honor, I think it is is what we did. Yeah, right. And he's turning into this other character. So someone that he didn't care for before was Chakotay, and now he wants to go after Chakotay. So... Yeah. It's kind of like, yeah, I'm a hero now. I'm going to do heroic things. Right. Even though they're you know, not, not conceived very well. <laughs> yes, exactly. I, I got to say, again, really nice to see Chakotay's sensitivity in these scenes, like with uh, uh, Karia and the, the rest of the, well, fake, <laughs> the hollow-projected uh, mm-hmm. uh, settlers. I thought it was really nice. and But in these scenes... 
there's also an ease now where he has adopted the Vori language. And I yeah. thought, like, uh, it's this subtle, gradual thing. And, of course, you know, these shots, uh, the, the scenes are all shot out of sequence. But you can really feel this, like, linear thing with him throughout the episode getting more and more and more absorbed into their culture and mm-hmm. into their emotion. Got to admit, the Beeman the reveal of Ambassador Treen was great. <laughs> that was See, like, like we knew it was coming, but I thought it was well handled. I'm, and I'm glad that you did. I wish yeah. I did because, again, with with that line that Neelix said earlier, I just felt like, okay, folks, you know, here is a hint of yeah. things to come, and I'm expecting something to be different, and you know, it just didn't but, but, surprise but me. But, but that's just it. It's like, you know it. You know somebody's coming. It's like, how are they going to do it? Are we just going to get a face on a view screen? Well, no, no, no. They, they save that from the audience. Presumably, mm-hmm. all these other conversations that we didn't get to see were over a view screen. So they just know right away, oh, the, right. this is who they are. But for us to make the beam in, and it's a little dark back there, but you're like, oh, of course. I wish I shared your enthusiasm. Okay, fair. Fair enough. (laughs) I I thought that uh, after Chakotay was saved by Brome, I thought the the makeup on his face looked very uh, convincing. You know, mm. he was dehydrated, he was beaten, uh, oh God, and, and yeah. looked like he was, you know, kind of uh, strung out, you know, and, yeah. and easily now uh, easily to be turned, yeah. you know, towards the uh, the Vori, uh, you know, because of that situation. And he was upturned. So Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, strung out literally and figuratively. There you go. Uh, very cool kind of use of the voice modulator on Tuvok and then being able to see his eyes very clearly through the heavy Creighton makeup. I I thought that was a nice choice. Like, okay, the effect is still very 90s, uh, kind of morphing in and out from Chakotay's point of view. I get it. it, That effect is never going to look the way that it would be shot now. But for what they had then, I thought all of that was pretty effective. And just seeing the eyes, you know, that's a big Michael Westmore thing. The eyes are the window to the soul. And that cutout through the Creighton makeup onto Tuvok, just making a little bit bigger. So we get to see him a little through it. And then that voice modulation kind of fades away. Very Mm -hmm. cool. And also, I got to say, Tuvok looked pretty badass in that Creighton uniform. It seems very likely that getting ready for a clash involves listening to a lot of combat rock. We will get right back to Nemesis after a word from this week's sponsor. All of you who are definitely not our Nemesis. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mean, come on, look, we're, we're all friends here. And, and more important than that, we get to hang out in the Mission Blog Discord every single week, which is great. I, I was describing this to someone, Norman, like kind of, kind of our mission log star trek book club oh i like that where we get to all yeah we get to get together hang out everybody has listened to the episode that week that we've released in the podcast we've all watched the episode and then we just get to chat so instead of it being a one-way conversation everybody gets to join in and uh that is truly one of the highlights of what we get to do in discord i mean there's no limitations for characters so no 240 characters per Mm-hmm. entry in your chat uh, there are live conversations that are happening every weeknight uh, there are people that are introducing so many different new fandoms and topics like on a daily basis 
there are many conventions in a way where people just get together yeah. and talk about a variety of different things. And it's not just limited to Star Trek, but that is our main focus on Discord because we are mission log after all. So yep. there's just a wonderful organic growth to what's happening there. And we have several exclusive things that we offer our subscribers and maybe uh, tell a little bit about those. We we do indeed. So look, the swag is fun anyway. There is exclusive Patreon swag that you get by joining us at patreon.com slash mission log. That is, of course, your key to get into Discord. You get early access previews to the podcast, unedited, uninterrupted, with a lot of value-added material. So the conversation continues. And then, well, really, Discord is the heart and soul of it, because that is ongoing 24-7. But, and I can say this because when this episode comes out, it is after Star Trek Las Vegas, but you mentioned many conventions that happen online. Well, we like to get together in real life, too. And when a big convention like that comes along, well, we have private exclusive events just for our Patreon supporters. And let me tell you, these are very nice events. <laughs> we, we don't just sort of, uh, oh, you know, find a, a corner booth in a local diner. Like, no, 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 which is great, too. I like doing that as well. But we have really nice events that are only for our Patreon supporters. So if you would like to join us, just as some of our recent supporters have joined us, I'm talking, of course, about Abraham, Karen Lynn, Dave, Tim, Charles, Gary. Thank you all for joining us at patreon.com slash mission log. Those people, just like you, have access to our Discord, where the conversation continues, and we hope that we see you there. Right at the beginning of this episode, I was trying to figure out what are all the references <laughs> that this was inspired by and meant to evoke in my memory. Right away, I thought of Full Metal Jacket. I don't know if you did, too. Yeah, that's a good reference. But I, yeah, because there's something in that movie. Of course, that movie is told in two very distinct parts, Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket, where you get the really abusive conditioning of these soldiers before they go off to war. And then the second half, you get the actual battle that they're a part of and how that has affected them and what they make of it. Great movie. But I kept thinking... You know, there are a lot of movies to try to get across a a similar feel, a similar message about how easy it is to manipulate and propagandize people into a position to act against their better nature. I'm thinking Starship Troopers myself. Uh, well, great choice, yeah. because, of course, we have an actor here from Starship. Yeah, and as yeah. a matter of fact, uh, yeah. the actor who played Rafe, and he was the first of the mobile infantry that we got to really know and kind of, you know, root and get behind to die, you know, mm -hmm. uh, when they attacked the, the bug planet for the first time. So it's yeah. – maybe that's the reason why they hired this particular actor, because the maybe. transition – Make that connection. Exactly, the, the emotional transition yeah. is there. So you're like, oh, yeah. of course, you know – this makes sense. But uh, you need, I mean, I'm, there's the book, you know, there's Heinlein's book, Starship Troopers, and then yep. there's the movie, and yep. then there's obvious differences, but that's not this conversation. But in the movie version of Starship Troopers, there still is kind of like this indoctrination of these, these younger minds to, to yeah. believe in a certain thing in order for them to gain citizenship, you know, within their government, within their society. And there is like literally the most ironic scene where 
I think it was a gunnery sergeant or someone who was signing up like these two beautiful young adults. I think it was it was Casper Van Dien mm-hmm. and uh, uh, I can't remember the the brunette girl, um, but um, yeah. he said that mobile infantry is the man that. It made me the man I am today, and he pushes himself back to get a couple papers, and he was missing his legs and one of his arms. So, yeah. you know, that's yeah. that's where I felt this story was kind of in the realm of. Denise oh, Richards. Yeah, sure. Denise sure. Richards. They, Sorry. Oh, yeah. there we go. Yeah, yeah. Of course. I was thinking about Dina yeah, Meyer. that too. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, Denise Richards, of course. Yeah. I, I wondered if... Okay, we're only seeing this one slice of the story from our hero's perspective, Chakotay. He's part of our team, mm-hmm. right? But as they describe in the episode, this happens over and over and over again. And this is how they build their ranks. It's just by conscripting people and forcing them into this brainwashing, this training camp, you know. But I wondered, since we know a thing or two about Chakotay, does the brainwashing work better on Chakotay because he is a sensitive soul, because he is a gentle man. Mm. I mean, would Janeway have had the same experience? Remember how much she pushed back at having a spiritual experience? Right, right. <laughs> you, know, you know, that long ago, right? She, she had to pull it apart, test it, prod it, see if she was actually going to let it stick. And I wonder if, uh, you know, these simulations may play out differently for different people, mm-hmm. but... Is it a situation where, okay, we can really get under Chakotay's skin because he can form an emotional bond with somebody like Karia? He can understand the brutal inhumanity that we're showing him. Therefore, we can flip him and make him that much more brutal of a soldier to fight back. See, I think that Janeway would be far more susceptible to this than Chakotay would be at this time because of what just happened with the Borg and how she's handling Seven. So her Ah. appeal to try and and unearth and reconnect Seven with Annika's humanity, that can... If they do a I don't know how they did the psychological profile on Chakotay, you know, when they shot him down, you know, but that's yeah. beside the point, you know, we're, we're entering this kind of midstream, you know, in the episode. But if they did that to Janeway and they figure out that she has kind of like this weakness towards, you know, um, the helpless and, and the powerless. And, you know, she said mm-hmm. that, you know, she'll she'll defend. She's that kind of defender, like the, the term that they use, you know, in this episode, who would risk all to make sure mm-hmm. that the people that she's supposed to defend are protected, you know, and, um, you know, and saved because, you know, Janeway does have a savior complex. So I think that if they were able to mine that out of her, she would have probably been far more fierce, you know, and maybe more easily turned than Chakotay was because Chakotay, he's not that hardened, I think, of a warrior in that way that Janeway is because you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought up, you know, the reference of him referring to self, himself as the gentleman because he said that before. Mm-hmm. And he uh, at the very beginning of the episode, he picked up a rifle and he told the uh, Creighton soldier that he goes, don't make me shoot you. I think Janu would have yeah. flat out shot him. Just would have done it. Yeah, I think, you know, so again, it's like Janeway two seasons ago, probably not Janeway right after, you know, her, you know, uh, encounter with the Borg and what she had to do and the choices that she had to make and her evolution of a character. Now, I think that she would have been the perfect candidate, you know, for this kind of training. It's just so interesting. It's like I've said it before on the show, and and it's kind of a, a, a truism. You know, nobody joins a cult. People join 
uh, a cause or a group because they think they're doing the right thing. They are convinced of the proposition that this group is making. Now, in a case like this with Chakotay, okay, he has to be force-fed that information. He, he has to get to that point then where he becomes convinced of their proposition that, you know, we are the good guys, the others are the bad guys. They are so bad that we have to risk ourselves constantly and fight back fiercely, constantly. That's the only thing that we can do. But, it, you know, you just wonder, like, what if they get somebody when they shoot down another shuttle or whatever, somebody who is less malleable mm. or somebody who's too volatile, you know, do these psychological techniques play out the same way? Is it like Tuvok's hollow novel where it always starts the same way, but then if somebody exposes themselves to be more sensitive, less sensitive, more violent, less violent, do they fine tune this bit of propaganda, the, this play to really get into the psychological trigger points that is specific for that person. Because as we see, that's why I use the cult metaphor here, people from all walks of life, people from all intellectual backgrounds, all education backgrounds can be convinced of maybe what conventionally be considered a wrong or incorrect belief if you've hit those emotional and psychological trigger points. Right. And we don't know like how the drugs are conditioning, you know, the the psychosis, you mm -hmm. know, during the training, you know, where the pressure points are being squeezed. There are those tropish parts in movies where, you know, the interrogator says everyone has a breaking point. And I mean it really it's really too bad that we didn't see kind of the Wizard of Oz curtain scene where we see the Vorai leadership. Yeah. And oh you know what? Here's another really good example. It just came to me. Ender's Game. Okay. Ender's Game is probably oh, like okay. the most relevant, I think, of all the examples that we've brought up so far, as good as they have all been. But that's yeah. really where you're taking like these children, these child soldiers like Ender, you know, and their their development yeah. and then forcing them through these war games to believe that they're actually fighting the real enemy. And in the end, they right. were fighting the real enemy, but they thought it was just a game. Right. So they didn't worry about yes. lives lost or comrades lost or allies lost or resources lost because it was just a simulation. So yeah. I remember the end of that. I'm like, that, that was effective because you never knew who the enemy really was until it was all over. Right. Right. But, you know, you bring up a good question because that made me wonder more about the Vori. Mm -hmm. And this episode is clever in withholding certain information. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very clever getting to the end and going, well, we just don't know who's right or who's wrong. What we know is we got you back. <laughs> what we know is the information that you were fed. And now we're going to get out of here and we're going to set up cones around this planet. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so nobody else does the same yeah. thing. But the thing about it, like the, the psychological conditioning is very interesting and very complex because propaganda is a powerful tool and then they combine it here with these visceral experiences forced on Chakotay. He goes through fear and deprivation and the the deep need for survival. And then you reinforce that with this positive influence, his encounter with the Larhana settlers, you know, that that's all reinforcing, no, no, you're the good guy. We're grateful for what you do. 
But I kept thinking in the back of my mind, this is a very resource-hungry operation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the, the, the Vori have to have a lot of advanced tech and use a lot of resources to make this happen day after day, maybe multiple times during the day in multiple camps. We don't know, but it made me very interested to know more about that. Yeah, again, it would have been interesting to see if, say, like Janeway was shown by the uh, the, the Creighton ambassador. This is just like this mm-hmm. one little cell you know this one little four by four cell that's a holographic you know uh, you know yeah. uh, like a hollow suite where chakotay is like one out of like thousands of you know uh yeah, soldiers being trained right. the exact same way so you can really kind of see Oof. the horror of uh yeah. essentially what's basically a giant kind of like mousetrap you know uh, where yeah. they're all being programmed in various different ways of various different scenarios of various different stimuli so that you see kind of like the nefariousness of how the Vori yeah. are tuning their programming to each individual oh. case, each individual conscripted soldier, you know, or Shanghai alien that just came upon their way, you know, like, uh, oh, man, that's what I wanted that, to say. That is dark. That is dark as hell. Yeah, it <laughs> really yeah. is. Yeah, but it's very interesting. They, and uh, hearing you say that, that kind of made me worry even more about how does Chakotay unlearn this level of brainwashing that he's been through? I mean, it was forced on him. And I, I know that being unbrainwashed is a thing that can be done, but then how can he not be triggered down the road again if he sees another Creighton, if he sees somebody who even looks like a Creighton, like you mentioned the Nausicans? Mm-hmm. How can he not carry that with him? Because this is a very profound experience that he went through, really absorbed all of this into his being. I think that that was a smart, uh, you know, a smart choice and almost kind of like a a telegraphing choice, you know, when it came to choosing an alien that looked so, so offensive, I guess is the right word, you Mm -hmm. know, something that you can really kind of like apply your prejudice towards, you know, when you're watching the episode. There's a line in Lord of the Rings, you know, when Frodo Mm -hmm. says to Eric or about Aragorn, he said, I think a servant of the enemy would look fairer and feel fouler. And that's where I was getting at (laughs) with the Vorai, you know, like they just it just seemed to me that they were leaning so heavily into these certain phrases, these certain uh, uh, these certain like character beats where they always talk about. The, the beast, you know, and, you know, the irreverence mm. and the cruelty. And, and they're always pointing towards they have to eradicate them because, you know, they're, you know, look at the way that they desecrate, you know, our dead. Look at the way that they attack our, you know, the innocent. And then Chakotay stumbles upon the village where they're still giving and caring and nurturing. Like, it's almost it's almost too perfect and it's almost weighed too heavily on one side to even believe yeah. that the other yeah. side is this barbaric. So that's, that's where I'm like, mm, it's just not quite ringing true with me. Just the way that the story is right. being told because yeah, sure. Like I'm on the side of Chakotay at the beginning. Like, look at that. He's obviously evil. And when you say something's obviously this, you have to question yourself. <laughs> is that the trap that I'm falling into? You can't just throw away a Starfleet uniform anywhere. The Voth will show up again and say, Oh no, these guys again. Alright man, we gotta wrap this up so we can get over to Club Grown Med. And, uh, you know... 
your tellings are true. <laughs> yeah. I fathom what you're saying. Good, good. All right, man. Well, let's glimpse this in our uh, wrap-up here in the final notes like we do every week. And uh, we share our tellings, determining if the episode held up and determining if there are morals, meanings, messages to take home. I would say that there probably are. I think this one is pretty much tipping its hat and saying like, yes, we know (laughs) there are morals, meanings, messages to share. But before we get there, let me ask you, Norman, does the episode Mm -hmm. hold up? Does Nemesis hold up today? So it's it's kind of dubious when you start off a response with, so I hate to say this, but... (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) Right? But I do hate to say this. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was one of those like really annoying, irritating audience members in the sixth sense Mm. that saw what was happening at the very start of that movie because it was just, it's either you saw it or you didn't. And there's no right or wrong to it. And I'm not slating anyone who didn't see it until the end, but, and it doesn't happen all the time to me, but in this episode, I just saw exactly what was happening too early. And that's where this episode just didn't you know work for me because i really 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 wanted to like this episode i wanted this episode to be a better subversion of my expectations Mm. than what i received and we Mm -hmm. were talking about this earlier about the reveal of the ambassador of the Kraden and and how much you enjoyed it and how much i wanted to because i wanted the subversion of expectations to be different i knew he was going to be the ambassador it's just that i wanted him to be something different than the no you just misunderstood me Mm. i'm really the good guy Mm -hmm. i just look like the bad but i'm the good guy so that's where this episode falls apart for me that you can feel from the very beginning that the creighton are being positioned to be hated right and through Chakotay and through the death of these very young, very handsome, very patriotic Vorai soldiers, every time one of them fell, Chakotay's anger ramped up. And we as the audience, our empathy towards them also went the same way because obviously they are the good guys, the Creighton are the bad right. guys, right? Obviously. But when you throw obviously into the equation, you're like, well, you don't really start thinking about it critically. And and maybe that's the point of this episode. But I also think that I've seen this done better and more effectively in other episodes of Star Trek. I'm going to reference, say, Let There Be Your Last Battlefield Mm. in a Private Little War from Mm. the original series. Now, I know they're not exactly, you know, note for note. They're not one for one in parity. But I felt that you don't see it telegraphed as easily in those episodes. Yeah. But again, you've seen so many different versions of this kind of story done so many different ways, you want to see it a little bit differently. And again, ugly aliens equal bad, human-looking aliens equal good. It's just a little too on the nose for me, and I wanted something a little bit more than that. I wanted to see the Vorai at the end, like again, have that curtain pulled back on them and show us just how devious you know, and nefarious their training really was, so that we can we can render a different judgment on them and say, wow, your war is so desperate that you're doing this kind of manipulation to helpless, countless people. Right. That makes them the enemy again. So I have to apply this rule that I've used on a lot of critiques about episodes of Voyager, episodes of Star Trek. If you remove this story from the overall season, does it change anything? I'm going to say no. But I'm also going to say that it was well-produced. Mm-hmm. It was well-directed. 
Robert Beltran really acted yeah. really well in this, and everything was in on the surface in terms of a production very good. Yeah, it's just that I felt I've seen this before. Yeah, and I just don't think I really need to see it again. But I'm glad I saw it because mm-hmm. I thought it was again just a well produced episode that didn't stand out for me. That's all. But how did how did you feel about it? Like, what did you guess? <laughs> well, well, here's what I glimpsed. Um, I'm actually going to take your negative points and tell you why, to me, they were more positive. Mm-hmm. Because, well, well, partly, we're getting a little bit of what I asked for an episode or two ago, which is that, okay, now that we're in season four, and now that Seven of Nine is established and new to the show, and we're 9,500 light years past Borg space, I was hoping that we would get some one-offs. And I was hoping that we would just get a classic kind of Star Trek story. I like it when Voyager has continuity. I like it when the characters have continuity. But I also like it when, okay, if you've just done a bunch of episodes that have some similar thematic ground and we've done that, okay, let's just go tell something that we can tell on our own and do this kind of classic Trek. And this is an episode absolutely that would have worked on any other series. You could take Kirk and throw him into the Chakotay role. You could take Riker and throw him into the Chakotay role. You could take Mm -hmm. Miles O'Brien and throw him in the Chakotay role here. And it would work. You could tell the exact same story and it would have worked fine. But I think that's because it's just inherently a strong premise because it gets across this very Star Trek kind of message, which we'll get into in a moment, you know. The other thing is this. I think that because it is well-produced, because it is well-acted, well-directed, etc., on first viewing for me, yeah, look, I, I'm like you. I knew that there was a twist coming. I knew that we're going to get a, a flip-flop here of who's the enemy, who's the good guy, who should we align with. I was expecting that moment. And it's kind of like watching a Twilight Zone episode. You go, okay, mm-hmm. there's a twist coming. I know it'll be there. How are we going to get it exactly? Not sure. Will it play dramatically? I feel like here the twist still played dramatically, even though I knew it was coming. But I also think that on repeat viewings, for our purposes, I appreciated the character moments with Chicote better. Because even yeah. from the very beginning, I was just going like, okay, now that I know it's a simulation, now what I'm watching for is every moment that Chicote's reason is taken away from him. Every moment mm-hmm. that he compromises his principles because of the situation that he's in. And those played better for me because then I wasn't watching for the reveal. You know? Oh, yeah. That's fair. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think okay. those are the things that, that make it work well. To your point, yeah, you could remove this and it not have any bearing on the future of Voyager. 100%. But, you know, maybe if we saw this in season two, we would have thought like, oh, okay, that's fine. That's just planet of the week, (laughs) you know. But now we have all this momentum built up from the last four episodes that it's like, oh, do do we really just want to take this side trip here? For me, that worked. But I, I think more important than any of that stuff, this really is about the message. So, oh, tell me what you got. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if there were, let's see, this is about a 49-minute episode, give or take a few seconds, and then obviously remove the commercials. Mm-hmm. So in the last 30 seconds of this episode, <laughs> yeah. it literally had 
a D20, perfect 20 role. Yeah. When it comes to what this episode was saying. Because for the most part, it was a little ambiguous because of the nature of the episode. But in the end, Chakotay said about the ambassador, I wish it were as easy to stop hating as it was to start. And that to me was like, I was thunderstruck by that because I'm like, that is about as Star Trek of a message that withstands the test of time to say, you know, hate, racism, bigotry, you know, we've experienced this in every single uh, series of Star Trek and how our characters handle that, Mm -hmm. you know, handle those elements and how we see these as the worst traits of humanity through kind of like the way that they're positioned through different alien races. These are all trained behaviors. I think that, you know, it's, I'm no psychologist and I'm not a behavioral expert. I'm not, I'm not going to pretend that I am, but I know one thing. I know that when we're born, we don't know anything. Mm -hmm. We're trained to do certain things. We're trained to walk. We're trained to talk. We're trained to eat. We're trained to ride a bike. We're trained to go to school. We're trained to swing a baseball bat. Those are all trained behaviors. So is hatred. Yeah. You know, so are, so are certain feelings. So are certain ways that you look at certain races and peoples and doctrines and religions, you yeah. know, and politics. Those are all trained. Yeah. And I mentioned this before in The Gift, which is one of the reasons why I still, you know, have a, a bone to pick with Janeway in the way that she handled Sevens, because what she's doing is a form of indoctrination. You know, you take these young minds that are supple, you know, mm-hmm. and malleable, and then you give them something to believe in. Well, that's a different type of belief. Hate is a belief. Yeah. You know, bigotry is a belief. Racism is a belief. So all of these different ways you train somebody, it's really difficult, like Chakotay said, to try and train that out of you when it's already in you. And I think that that is, we don't even have the time, I think, to get into like the psychology of that, you know, but that is probably as explicit of a moral meaning or message that I have seen in an episode. And it landed in the last <laughs> sentence of dialogue in this episode. I mean, they, they uh, really, they gave us yeah. a, you see to me moment. Yeah. They really and did. it was a good one. And, and here's yeah. what I, about, what I appreciate yeah. and respect about the episode is that it doesn't like, it gives us that moment, but it also doesn't let Chakotay off the hook. It's not one of those right. slap on the back moments like, boy, I'm glad I understand that now. And now I get to carry on with my life not being bigoted and hateful about these aliens that I just met. No, 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 no. Mm-hmm. It's just starting for him. Now mm-hmm. now he actually has to do the work to unlearn that now that his eyes have been open and he has glimpsed more <laughs> than, than he imagined. Well, that's like what Yoda said to Luke. You have to unlearn what you learned. Mm-hmm. Right, because those are the things, the hate, the fear, all of the anger, that's all what followed Luke into the cave, not his physical stuff, but the mental stuff, the emotional stuff. Like that's the, what you have to unlearn. Yeah. You know, that's what the Jedi train their younglings, you know, when they're very, very small because they haven't learned anything right. yet. Right. Look, I, I love it when we can watch an episode and write down the exact same notes. <laughs> I, I love it when Star Trek can do us a solid and just conveniently hand us the message right into a simple short line of dialogue right at the end of the episode. Thank you, Ken Biller, for doing that. Seriously, though, you know, we've said it a thousand times and you just said it so eloquently. Hate is taught. Bigotry and prejudice are taught. The most difficult but rewarding thing 
that we can do for ourselves is to unlearn those dangerous lessons. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you would like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com, and for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Revulsion. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. If there's only one takeaway from this story, it's that Tuvok is all set for every Halloween between here and the Alpha Quadrant. Transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.